Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Well, Dan, while many Americans are hopeful that uh, a new administration will bring renewed interest and commitment to religious freedom, there are other members of our community who are fearful and apprehensive about their own religious freedom. Our guest today is my good friend Zara Bilu, Executive Director of the San Francisco Office of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, and we're going to talk about uh, how the American Muslim community has been uh, responding to uh, the outcome of this election. Zara, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thank you so much for having me, Alan. Um, I wish better circumstances brought us together, but it's good to talk to you. Well, always a good opportunity for us to um, promote understanding religious freedom for people of all faiths. Um, you know, we've all seen the press reports about increased violence, attacks on Muslims in America. Um, from where you sit in San Francisco, just how concerned is the Muslim American community uh, about threats to their freedoms? You know. A lot of people think that California and specifically the Bay Area are exempt from hate crimes and, and hate incidents. That's not true. There have been more than there were more than thirty hate crimes um, and incidents targeting members of the Muslim community in California in just the first ten days after the election, and that's just what gets reported. So people are concerned. Many community members are talking about self-defense classes. They're talking about what are the different safety precautions that they need to take as individuals. Mosques have increased security also, so they're on high alert about the potential for an attack because there have been so many attempts at vandalism, arson, and other things in California, but also across the country. Well, and that's just okay, when you say hate crimes. crimes, what kinds of what kinds of crimes are we talking about, and how do we know that they're hate crimes? Right. For example, one of the first stories in California after the election was a young woman who was at her university, San Jose State University, in the parking garage in broad daylight. And someone came up to her and pulled her headscarf so hard that it choked her. Now, they didn't say anything, but our inclination is that if they pulled the most visible part of her Muslim identity, that she was targeted for it, right? They didn't try to take her purse. They didn't try to sexually assault her. They didn't steal anything from her car. They took her, or they pulled her headscarf, right? And so that's one of many examples of where people are experiencing harassment or actual violence because of their religious identity. You know, and the statistic that I have seen quoted over and over and over again is from the Southern Poverty Law Center. And I don't know if, you know, if anybody's looked into um, the veracity of, of that figure. But, you know, you work with an Islamic organization. You guys get calls directly to you, right? right? So, and so have you seen an influx of calls, and you've talked with your colleagues around the nation, where the Islamic organizations are getting calls about these kinds of attacks? Yes. Yeah. So we work closely with the Southern Poverty Law Center, uh, but we also collect our own data directly from members of the community that we serve. And so 10 days after the election, the number that we published was over 100 incidents across the country. Now, those were 
incidents where people contacted us and they knew about contacting us because of our longstanding work in the community, but also because their leaders were pointing them to us. Still, when we published that number, we verified every incident first, which is something that we put forward to say that, look, every incident, when we're putting it forward, we're verifying it. Now, that's not true that every incident in general in the media is verified, right? And so there's this challenge with any number. Some numbers are, some stories are fake. And some stories that are real are underreported. Sure. And so it does make the veracity of the numbers hard and upsetting when something does turn out to be fake. So let's talk for a minute about the, the campaign rhetoric, because I don't think that it's fair to say that all Christians who voted for Trump are, you know, hostile to the religious freedom of Muslims or want to exclude Muslims, etc. Um, certainly, there are plenty who resonated to Trump's rhetoric that was um, quite anti-Muslim. Um, but I think many people, they see that as political rhetoric that was never intended to be taken seriously and isn't going to become policy. Is, is there concern within the Muslim leadership about actual policy changes that could seriously uh, you know, undermine uh, the rights of Muslim Americans? I want to clarify that I agree. I don't think that every Christian or anyone else, right, there are many, many people who voted for Trump, um, was necessarily a racist, but our concern is that they were willing to overlook his racism, right, that whatever their self-interest or disregard was, he was saying incredibly hateful things for a year. And people were willing to say, well, we don't believe that, or we don't think it's that true, or whatever my interest in putting him in office is is more important than all of the horrible, dangerous things he's saying. And so I don't think everyone that voted for him is a racist, but I do think they overlooked his racism, his misogyny, and so many other problems. Now, will he enact the promises that he made on the campaign trail? There's nothing to stop him. And, and that's what's really frightening, right, is that he has a Republican-led Congress. He has an opportunity to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And we spend a lot of time talking about the Supreme Court, but there are also many other judicial vacancies that will be filled during his administration, right? And so the system of checks and balances, we worry, is incredibly out of balance. And then, the, I mean, the, the two other things I'll say about this are the cabinet he has surrounded himself with or the potential appointees surrounding himself with are, are problematic. They have long records of racist rhetoric, of Islamophobic rhetoric, of bad foreign policy ideas, and this is who he's pulling in as close advisors. So that was the second to last thing. The last thing is, Look, President Obama got away with a lot of really bad policy on deportation, on surveillance, on drone use, right? Like those things went largely unchecked under the Obama administration. He deported more people than any other president in history. He assassinated, executed U.S. citizens abroad without them having an opportunity to defend themselves. All of that's going to be handed over to Donald Trump. The last thing that we're, I mean, the the thing that we're hoping he will do before he leaves office is dismantle the National Security Entry Exit Registry System, which was the Bush-era Muslim registry. But if he doesn't do that, it's going to be really easy for President-elect Trump to actually come through on his promise for a Muslim registry. Well, let me reflect on what you're saying first with the observation that I hear you giving a, a nonpartisan critique because... Uh, you certainly just gave uh, a pretty scathing critique of uh, some Obama administration policies, which, frankly, I think is is well-deserved. 
the things that, that you mentioned are certainly factual. Um, facts have fallen into uh, disfavor these days in our political discourse, it appears. Um, but, you know, I hear you criticizing not only uh, Trump's rhetoric and his uh, proposed policies, but also uh, what Obama administration has actually done and how it has impacted uh, the Muslim community. Um, tell me more about the situation with the registry. I, you know, the Americans have heard a lot about, oh, you know, Trump wants to um, register all Muslims, etc. But there was a registry that many are unaware of that was put into place in the post 9-11 era. Um, so that registry is still in existence. Is that what you're saying? Mm -hmm. So post 9-11, George W. Bush um, and his administration implemented the program that we call NSEERS, National Security Entry Exit Registration System. What it required was men, I believe over the age of 16, from a number of countries, um, the overwhelming majority, I think there was one that was not a Muslim-majority country, and that was North Korea, but everything else was a Muslim-majority country, who had to go in and register their presence on special registration days, and they had to do invasive interviews and, you know, check-ins, and many were held back. Like What I still remember as an 18-year-old activist at the time was people would go to these registration days and not come home, so much so that we started to actually do our own registry outside of the immigration building so that we could know who was coming in just in case they didn't come out. Now, through the program, over 80,000 people registered, over 10,000 were put into deportation proceedings. And, of course, the, the best number of all, there were zero terror convictions obtained, right? And so not only is it counter to our values, it's an ineffective use of resources. And for anyone that's not, you know, upset by the idea of a Muslim registry, hopefully they're upset by the idea of wasting limited government resources going after people who are willing to comply with laws and rules. You know, I really appreciate your giving us this perspective on the registry because, you know, we hear a lot of rhetoric and we don't hear a lot about how the system has worked. You know, I was familiar with the fact that the courts had upheld the Bush-era registry because it wasn't singled out by religion. It was singled out by uh, certain nations. Um, but the fact that, yeah, so out of 80,000 people screened, they didn't find a single terrorist, I think that's quite uh, instructive for us, that this kind of screening program is really completely useless in terms of the larger issue of terrorism. But, you know, I also think that it, it really points a finger at a fundamental problem, which is the notion that because there are some um, violent Muslims who have a violent, you know, terrorist ideology, that that somehow... Um, you know, paints all Muslims with the same brush. Uh, and once you put it out there, it's so obviously absurd, and yet people harbor these sort of unthought-through attitudes about an entire community. Right. I mean, and I guess two additional thoughts on this. So since the original program, the way it's been made inactive is by delisting the countries that people had to register if they were from. And so what we've been asking President Obama and the current administration to do is to actually dismantle the program, right? Because then it's not just a matter of reinitiating. It would have to be recreated. I agree with you on not painting with a broad brush an entire community. And the 
community, we're talking about 1.6 billion people. And my additional piece there is that we have to look critically at what we call terrorism, right? And so right now, there is criminal activity that happens emanating from every community. And we don't paint with a broad brush all white Caucasian, like all white males. We don't paint with a broad brush all Christians, all Catholics. Right? That, that's not something that we do. We hold individuals responsible for their actions, except when it is a Muslim individual. Then we want to call it terrorism, and we want to look at the entire community as suspect rather than as fellow Americans that similarly need protection and that are willing to work with others. You know, as we close, we've just got about another minute left. I recently learned about a program called Know Your Neighbor, which a number of faith groups are participating in. Um, the idea being that we build friendships with people of other faiths, people who are different from us, and we break down the barriers that misunderstanding um, often creates, the prejudice that comes from not knowing our neighbors. Uh, is this something that the Muslim community has been participating in? Yes, absolutely. There are Muslim organizations that have partnered on that national effort, and even internally, something that we're saying to each other is that it's not just about protecting protecting Muslims from our Muslim registry. It's about protecting African Americans of all faiths from police killings. It's about protecting undocumented people from different countries and different faith backgrounds from immigration raids, deportation harassment, and so on. And so, yes, absolutely, we're encouraging Muslims to get to know their neighbors formally and informally. Well, and I would encourage all of our listeners to take this to heart, to see this as an opportunity to build bridges of friendship. Whether you think the fear is justified or not, this is an opportunity for us to build community in our communities, to get to know one another. And so uh, I'm grateful, um, Zara, for your work and for taking the time to be with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you for having me. As we close, we want to remind our listeners here at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk the talk about religious discrimination. We provide legal services to those suffering religious discrimination. Check us out at churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.